You are listening to the Elevation Indie Podcast. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you can know exactly when the podcast becomes available. We hope you enjoy this week's message, and we hope that it brings blessings into your life. We're in a series called Vintage Christmas, and I'm talking about do these few weeks in December, the vintage Christmas story, the old story. And we know a lot of stories, and I mentioned Rudolph and Frosty last week. How many know about the Grinch? Everybody know about the Grinch? I mean, yeah, I mean, he was kind of a scary guy when I was a kid. Like, we, we, we'd, we'd watch that, and then that Jim Carrey thing made him even scarier. Like, I'd hate for that guy to show up in my house, you know what I mean? But I think the Grinch does have a, it's a good story, you know what I mean? Like, like the Grinch is just this old, ugly, mean, uh, just... I don't know, years ago we used the word heathen. I don't know if that's a popular popular word to use today. I mean, he just got stuff going on. He's messed up. And then he has kind of this come to Jesus moment. They don't spell that out just like they should, but they do talk about his heart changing. You know what I'm saying? Like something happens to old Grinch, and now he's filled with joy, and he's wanting to just be generous, and he's loving people that he didn't love before, and he's just doing it. I'm like, yeah, go Jesus. Because even an old Grinch can come to Jesus and have a life transformed, right? And so, but we're spending time go, going back. I, I would say you could call this a prequel because a lot of times, and I talked about this last Sunday, that, that we know the story, one of the greatest stories from the Bible that people in the world know, and yet they know just parts of it. And maybe, they, I mean, and sometimes I'll watch one of those Christmas movies and, and they'll get to the point where they'll mention the birth of Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, you know what I mean? I'm glad when they do that. But then I'm also like, well, people don't know why did the baby have to be born and placed in the manger. Like, it's a, it's a neat event and, and, and all this, and we celebrate it and all those things, but they don't know that there's a backstory behind that. And last week we talked about creation, and today I'm going to talk about the fall. Last week we talked about how in Genesis 1, uh, God uh, created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And, and then he said it was good. And all those things that he said was good. And how many know the creation was a good thing? We enjoy the creation, don't we? And then in Genesis 2.18, he's seen all those good things. And then he saw something and he said, well, that's not good. Man being alone. And God doesn't want you alone uh, this Christmas season. He sent his son so you didn't have to be alone. So we'll pick it up in Genesis 3 uh, here in just a moment just to kind of give you the kind of the, the picture of the innocence of man. Adam and Eve are in a garden, and they want for nothing. Remember when you was a kid, and like you didn't, you, got, you could play like two or three hours, and you weren't thinking, I wonder how much the light bill is going to be this month. Or like, you know, like gas is $3 a gallon, what are we going to do? Or, you know, inflation is happening, or, or all that stuff. You didn't think about that stuff, you know what I mean? Like you're just playing and having a good time. Like, sometimes you'd ask for stuff. Your parents may not had the money for it, but you'd ask for it because that didn't even hit your radar. Anybody ever had a kid that asked for everything in a store? Like, can I have that? Can I have one of those guys? No. I'm playing a little bit, but, you know. Kids don't have the, the filter to know the, the, the big pressing things because there's an innocence. And Adam and Eve like that in that fashion. They're in the garden, and, and they, don't, they don't have to dig in the ground to plant anything. They don't have to weed anything. They don't have to, their weeds are non-existent. They just walk up to the tree and get a piece of fruit and eat whatever kind they want. That's a nice day, right? They're just enjoying life, and God says you can have every tree except for one. I think it's a pretty good deal, don't you? 
Like, it's all yours. Just keep one for me. That one right there. That's, that's, don't, don't, don't eat of that one. Well, a serpent comes in Genesis 3, verse 1. A serpent comes, and, and um, the word beguiled is used, that, that uh, Eve is deceived in what he's saying, and, and then they, she eats of the fruit, and she gives it to Adam, and he eats of the fruit, and now their eyes are open to a whole level of, of, um, of life that they didn't know before. The innocence has been taken away. It's, been, it's gone. And so now they're, they realize they're naked and they're hiding themselves, and and God comes, and they know they've done wrong, and and um, the Lord begins to speak to them, and you know about what had happened. And verse, uh, let's pick it up, verse twelve. And then the man said, he's been questioned, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Stop right there. Got a little blame shifting going on. You know what I'm saying? Like, in fact, in fact, I think I think Adam is, has a little brilliance in the way that he because Adam was a smart guy. You know what I mean? He just was. He named all the animals. I mean, I've not done that. We've not done that. And he says, the woman, she's the blame. But just so you know, Lord, you're the one that gave her to me. And the Lord said to the woman, "What is this that you've done?" The woman said. Here we go, another act of blame shifting. The serpent deceived me and I ate, right? Devil made me do it. And so the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And we'll stop right there just so we get a picture that, that um, we, we sometimes, like I've, I've talked to people and they say, well, this is allegoric and so I was used to get invited to speak to this young adult gathering in the inner city and There'd be, I don't know, 40, 50 young adults here, and I don't know why they picked me because I was way older than all of them there. But, you know, I, I was sharing a little bit, and this young guy came to me and said, hey, he said that part there in the Old Testament where it talks in Genesis, where it talks about, I think that's just allegory. I said, oh, okay. Like, could you think that? I guess somebody could think that. But then I, I, I thought about how that, well, Paul, he corroborates this in, in uh, 1 Corinthians and John does it in Revelation uh, chapter 12 and also chapter 20 that this serpent was the devil and, and Peter, he confirms it and, and, uh, as well. And so then I, I thought, well, you know, you could think that, but I'm probably not going to believe you because there's three, at least three apostles that have put their stamp of approval on it as well. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Right, and so, so I, I don't tend to make this allegoric. I think it's just as it happened, and I think that I stop there for a moment, just because sometimes maybe we look at the the serpent in the Bible and we just see a snake like we see today, but we see the cursed version of that. Science has said that that snakes have a place where legs used to be. That's that's a crazy. I go science. That's a, that's a crazy kind of thing because evolution always seems like it's supposed to improve you, and now they're saying, well, somehow they went back and got rid of their legs. And I'm like, well, the Bible tells us what happened to those legs. In fact, he he gives us this picture. The comparison isn't of reptiles or fish or birds. The reptile or the the uh, the comparison is with cattle and beasts of the field, with mammals. In fact, it may very well have been that the serpent was definitely had legs and could have walked upright or on all fours or whatever it looked like and had the ability to speak because they weren't shocked when the serpent spoke to them. You catching what I'm saying? And so then as, as, I, as I go ahead and read this, it says, on your belly you're going to go. 
No longer, again, walking upright or on four legs. Or no legs at all. You're gonna, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I'm going to put an enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. If you're taking notes, you got your Bible out, or you could highlight that, your seed and her seed, that most generally when you mention seed, it's from the male, not the female. But, but this is a specific, important key in the birth of Christ and the prophetic uh, uh, potential that is placed here. In fact, Augustine said he's the first one on record that brought this out. So there's, there's supposedly years and years went by that, that no one understood the, what, what's called the messianic prophetic impl- implications of this verse, that, that Augustine could see the enemy right here and, and, and that this was a messianic, a prophecy that was going to be fulfilled one day. And you're going to bruise, uh, he shall bruise your head, and you're going to bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be uh, for your husband, and he shall rule over you. See the battle of sexes kind of played out right there for us. Then Adam, he said, because you have heeded, then Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so the, the, um, the picture of man being dust and the enemy being one who eats dust is, is given to us right here. And, and it's important, you know, the enemy's mentioned, the Satan's mentioned in Job chapter 1, where it says there was a day when the sons of God presented themselves before God, and Satan came also, and the Lord said to Satan, whence comest thou? And he said, from going to and fro and up and down in the earth. And so we get this picture of the enemy being this uh, on this roving kind of uh, tour and 1 Peter 5, 8 says this to us, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Right? The dust eater is searching for men and women. John 10, 10 says this, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There's an enemy that you have, and the promise is this, that God's going to send one mightier, one that's going to fulfill the promise and give us freedom and victory over him. Aren't you glad for that? And the curse, you know, sometimes talk, people talk about, you know, the curse of man and the curse of, uh, the curse was for the serpent because of his deception, right? He's the arch deceiver, the father of lies, all lies is what the Lord tells us. And, and the curse was on the soil because of man. And certainly uh, we look at that and see it. I think it's important that you get this part of this message that, that and, you, get, and, you, and you, you can walk away with this, is that all of our greatest disappointments, in this life, in this world, can be traced back to this right here in Genesis chapter 3. All of it. And I'm saying this, that, that you got to understand that in this world, you're going to experience disappointment. And I know that's not great news, but that's just the truth. And if I didn't preach the truth, I wouldn't be a good pastor. And I'm just telling you, in this, in this world, you're going to experience disappointment. But, but I want to help you today in, in understanding how to navigate, how to deal with disappointments that life in a broken world 
is going to inevitably bring. We're going to experience disappointment. In fact, I think you've got to understand the theology of, of disappointment. That when you're living in a broken world, sometimes believing and wanting the right things means you're going to be disappointed. There are times in our life when dreams and reality seem not to match. It seems like we have this dream, but the reality looks so different, and they're, they're so divergent. They're so separated, and, 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 and maybe that's for a night. The psalmist said that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Aren't you glad for that? But, but sometimes the season of our disappointment may even be longer. It might not just be a, a night. It may be a week, maybe weeks, maybe months. Maybe, maybe some of you feel like you're in a decade of disappointment. I just want you to walk away from here today understanding that that's the reality of this world, but there's hope in the disappointment that we experience. And maybe it feels like that in your marriage right now. Maybe the dream for your marriage seems so different than the reality, re, reality that you're experiencing. Or when you think about your kids and, and the dream that you have for them, that the reality with your kids is, is disappointing. It's not what you had hoped. Or maybe you're single and you don't want to be single. And it seems like the dream that you have for marriage is eluding. Or maybe your family in planning, you want a child, but you've not seen that child yet. And you're hoping and you're praying, but you're feeling lonely. Maybe Maybe, maybe a loved one is sick. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you can't put your finger on it, but you know there's something in your life that just feels empty, and it feels like an extended season of disappointment. You're not feeling yourself. And just understand, that's a part of the disappointment of a fallen world. And I want you, we talked about creation last week. The day we're talking about the fall, and you say, Pastor, it seems like the fall is not very good news, and it's not. But next week we're going to talk about redemption. I mean, that's a good, that's a good thing, right? Redemption, and we're going there. But uh, hang with me today because I believe you're going to get some help out of this. Genesis 1 and 2, that beautiful picture of God's people and God's place with God's purpose and what God is doing and the beauty and, and perfection of that creation. And by the way, redemption isn't the final, and restoration is what he's headed for, to restore that for us once again. Genesis 3, though, um, it just seems like so much disappointment. I mean, if you've read this many times, and many of you have, you're, you, you kind of find yourself still cheering for them to do the right thing. You know what I mean? Even though you know the outcome. And, and I think that all these disappointments we experience in this life, well, they connect to this Genesis 3. Marital conflict is because of the fallen world we're in. Broken relationships is because of the fallen world we're in. Injustice and inequality fallen world, death and disease, fallen world, war and corruption, fallen world. All of those things traced back to Genesis chapter 3. But the question I want to answer for you today is, but how do you deal with disappointment that you're going to face as you walk through life in this fallen world? And we're going to read in Luke chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me. It's the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And I think that we can glean a lot uh, from this chapter. That's a part of the Christmas story that, that nobody sets up the scene of this like they do the nativity scene in their house. You don't put like, here's Zacharias and here's Elizabeth and, and here's, here's the baby and all this. We, we don't set that up, but it's a significant part because of who is the product of this story. And so, so uh, first of all, I want us to grab this, is that right, we're dealing with disappointment in a fallen world. And in, a, in this fallen world, you need, and here, here's, here's the news, it's not good news, it's truth news, you got to expect pain in this world. 
I would say it like this. No one on this planet makes it out of this life without a deep encounter with pain. We're all going to experience it. Many of you could say, yeah, I've experienced painful places in my life already. They say that on, on average that, that human beings in America will experience a, a tragedy one, one to three times in their lifetime. And some, somebody's saying, I'm on number 16 right now. And, and, and I get it because we're in a fallen world and, and pain comes. And we'd never sign up for pain, but it's a part of the world we're in. And it's important that you understand there's two types of pain. If you're taking notes, you might write this down. There's unnecessary pain, and that's the pain that, that you will find when you make unfortunate, unwise decisions. Anybody ever experienced that pain? Like you, like, like you had made a misstep, you, you made a bad decision there, you made a wrong turn, and, and then it just brought all this stuff. And no one wants those. And I'm glad those are unnecessary. We don't have to experience that kind of pain. Hope we learn from the times that we've made a wrong decision and we get better, right? And then, then there's two, there's the unavoidable pain that we have in the, this life. And, and that's the type of pain that you really don't have to go looking for. It's not because you made a bad decision. It's not because you were unwise. It's stuff that just happens in a fallen world. Some people would, would relegate it to DNA, like you're, you got a diagnosis, you were healthy, you, were just, you just went for a regular checkup, and they said, hey, we, we see something here. And they got the check, and they found out, well, you got this, and they gave you the title of it, and now you got it. Maybe it's a terminal thing that's happening quickly, or maybe it's just some, some um, uh, immune, uh, immune uh, disorder or whatever it is, and now you're dealing with that. And every single one of us experienced the unavoidable pain in life because bad things happen to good people. How many know that? I want to clarify and just drill down a little bit more. Bad things happen to God's people sometimes. And sometimes people sell you a theology based on that you're never going to experience one wrong thing. And if you, if you, if you do, it's because of something that you were short on. I'm not saying that can't happen, but I'm just saying this, that... There are things in this world that are unavoidable. You know, I didn't elect to lose my hair. And that's just funny. It's not like a big deal. You know what I'm saying? Funny for you. You're laughing, but I'm saying, you know. Luke chapter 1, verse number 5. We'll pick it up. There was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, his wife, was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. I think it's important to get a little background on who um, we're talking about here. Zechariah was a priest, which, which means this, that he served God as his vocation, as his living. This is what he did, his occupation, his profession was a priest. As a priest, uh, he would have had to marry a virgin in Israel. And Zechariah, he didn't just choose any just any old virgin in Israel, he found Elizabeth. And what the text tells us is that she's a descendant of Aaron. And that's important for you to understand because, first of all, it's important to understand that Zechariah, I think he's kind of the poster child for how did that guy get that girl. I mean, I'm looking around here, and there's a bunch of you guys. Like, everybody knows that you don't know you're the poster child for it, but everybody else is thinking that. Any guys say, hey, amen, I went for a Volkswagen, I end up with a Cadillac? Anybody say that? Any men? Like, yeah. And, but, but it's important to understand, this is a power couple. I mean, they just, they just have something. They're not your everyday run-of-the-mill, just whatever. Um, 
they've got some stuff going on because verse 6 tells us this, and they were both righteous. Verse 6 of, of Luke chapter 1, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. It's a pretty big deal. They're godly people. It's a godly couple, right? They have this heritage, and yet they're also godly. And, and so when you, when you see that, uh, you're thinking, okay, I, got, I know what verse 7 is going to say. It's going to be awesome because of who they are, and, and yet it's filled with disappointment. Verse 7 says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they both were well advanced in years. And you got to understand, in their society, in that culture, to be barren, to not have a child, was, was almost as though she would have carried public shame. When we read throughout God's Word, we, we see over and over again that she would, she would have felt shameful and, 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 and just, um, they both would have thought in their old age they will have no one to care for them because there wasn't programs like we have today and there wasn't things to care for people as we would today. And so they would have been in a place where they didn't have children to care for them in their old age, physically or financially. And uh, just back to the theological perspective, this lands us in a place, because if we're not careful, we'll view Christianity, um, understanding that God does bless us and he desires to bless us, and we have access to incredible things through the Lord, but we'll, we'll land in a place where we kind of create this karma Christianity. You know what I'm talking about. Like, like karma is the idea that if you do good, good will come back to you. If you do bad, then you're really going to get bad back. And I'm glad that that's not our experience. That's an entirely different thing because in our experience, sometimes you did bad, but the grace of God took care of some stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody here thankful for the grace of God? That, that, that this is grace Christianity, not karma Christianity. That we talked a, a few weeks ago about sowing and reaping and seeds and, and thank God that, that we can sow in a fashion that we'll reap from that. But I'm so glad that so many times God has brought something more and better than what we ever should have received. And so many times he's given us grace beyond that. And somehow, sometimes we want to believe that God is somehow like, a, like some big cosmic lottery in the sky. And somehow, if we get the combination of numbers just right, we're going to hit the jackpot. That, 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 that like uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, that, that heritage and living godly and getting the right performance somehow is going to produce a heavenly jackpot over our life. And I'm just saying this, good heritage, good character. Um, we're expecting verse 7 to be chock full of God's blessings and, 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 and then... Um, they experience this heavenly payout. And some of you, you're sitting here today and, and you're, you, you've been caught in, the, in, the, in the, the, just the slide of comparison Christianity where you look at somebody else and like they've got blessings and they got favor and they got this and they got that and you feel like you ain't got nothing. Best grammar I got for this. And then if you're not careful, you start looking at them. And by the way, that's all your imagination. They may not have it as good as you think they do. They may not have it, and if they do, praise God. You hear what I'm saying? We don't need to be envious or jealous about what someone else has got. And what happens is in this comparison kind of thing, uh, we, get, we get to this, I, this place of thinking, if I perform right before God, God will provide for me. And that's a lie. That's a lie. And when you do that, 
when you get into performance Christianity and you get in this place where you feel like if I do all these things, then God's going to do this for me, and then you don't experience that, then you start placing blame on God. And then, and then you, you get a little disappointed in him. You get disappointed in people, in his church. You get disappointed in yourself, and you live this miserable, let me go back to the Grinch, Grinch kind of life. And I'm saying that it's a dangerous thing when you get to a place that you're expecting God's going to, that you're going to play God like you play the lottery. John 16, 33, I love this verse. I love the wording. I love Jesus' words all the time. But he said, I've, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Everybody shout peace. Peace is a good thing. And in this passage, the, the Greek, which comes from the Hebrew shalom, means this uh, it's perfect peace. It's nothing lacking. It's God uh, completing you. And so he says that in me, and Jesus says, in me, you're going to have peace. But he said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Now, I don't know how clearer, how much, with how much more clarity he could have ever spoke this, that in him you're going to have peace, but in this world, you're going to have trouble. Everybody say trouble. Let, let me make sure you get it. I was going to stare you in the eyes for a moment, that in this world, world, you're going to have trouble. Sometimes I hear people like, well, I don't know why this happens in the world. And if God's real, why does he let this happen? Because in this world, there's trouble. Because we're in a fallen world, and the fallen world messed up creation to the point that we see all the things that we see, and that never was God's plan. That was man's faltering in God's, God's plan. And, and so now, we sometimes, and even as Christians, we get in this place where we're going through something and we think, well, where is God? Well, he's just, he's just where he said he would be because he said you're going to have peace in him, but this world you're going to have trouble. And your trials should confirm that Jesus is telling the truth and that he can be trusted. Therefore, trials should never lead us to shipwreck our faith. They should just confirm our faith. Anybody with me? Because you put your trust in him, in the, in the one who told you that in this world would be trouble, you need to experience the peace that he has for you. And you may be saying, there may be many saying, well, I feel closer to the Lord today than, I, than, than maybe I've ever felt in my life, and yet I'm in this season where, where it seems like it's exhausting and, and it's discouraging. And I, would just, I just want you to understand this, that if you're experiencing that, you should just lift up your head and say this, that... In a fallen world, I can expect pain, but in Jesus, in a fallen world, I can have peace. Because in this fallen world, the next thing, and we, we sing it when we sing Waymaker, but, but God is working even when you can't see him working. How many know that? Right? Even when I don't feel that he's working, even when I don't see that he's working. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, So it was that while he was serving, while Zacharias was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, you got, let me give some context so we understand what's, what's happening here. That there's eighteen to 20,000 priests in Israel at this time. And, uh, and that's far too many priests for them to all serve in the temple all the time in God's house. And so, so they, would, they were divided up into 24 divisions. And each division served for one week, twice a year. And then for special festivals, and, and uh, they'd, they, they would serve. And, and so when we're reading right now that Zechariah's division is uh, he's serving his duty in the temple, 
uh, that would be once in the morning, right? And, 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 and in the evening, a priest would be chosen to enter the holy place, burn incense, offer prayers. And most likely at this time, it'd be easy for us to understand some of the prayers, uh, no doubt, to be delivered from the oppression and, and the rule and, and delivered from certainly Rome and what was going on and to get chosen to serve as priest that goes into the holy place and to offer incense and to pray prayers, they would cast lots. And I think that's a strange thing, and yet that's the way they did it. We don't have anything like casting lots in our society. Best thing I could think about that would be similar is rolling dice. Now, when the Holy Spirit came, last time you read about them casting lots is in Acts chapter 1, when they're trying to fill the shoes of Judas, and they've got um, uh, Matthias there, and, uh, and they're trying to figure out who's going to be the, take the place of Judas. They cast lots. After that, the Holy Spirit fell, and never ever again do you see leaders trying to cast lots to figure out anything. But during this time, can you imagine they're going to roll dice, and you're going to be selected to go into the holy place. And, and by the way, like, you go in there, you don't have sin in your life because you may just fall dead. Okay, you're, com- you're coming in before Shekinah glory. It's like a big deal. And, and so he's been chosen. It's his time. And, and, and by the way, you know, this may have happened for years. I'm sure certain, and he's, he's old, he says. So for years this has happened, Zacharias, and now it's his turn. A lot fell upon him, and maybe many many priests never did. And, and it's significant because of God's timing, the way God is working. Luke 1.10 it says this, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And while they're praying, this angel appears at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah is in that place, and God has sent an angel. And, you know, the Bible always says this, that Zechariah, whoever it is, Zacharias is troubled about what he sees, and fear fell upon him. And verse 13 but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. That's what angels say. Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, Zacharias could have said, what prayer are you referring to? He doesn't necessarily, but maybe he thought that because no doubt he's prayed a lot of prayers. And maybe because of their age, he's quit praying for a child. But way back when, the Bible says they were praying for a child. They had hopes, and they had offered up prayers for a child. And now God has come back to say that your prayer is being answered. And basically what the angel is saying is, he's saying, Zechariah, God never forgot about you. God, Zechariah, there was never a moment where God did not see you and Elizabeth. You've never been off of God's radar. He's always seen you and known exactly what he's going to do in and through you, and you're going to get your kid. And I want to tell you this morning that you may think, well, where is God and what is God doing? It looks like God's not doing anything. And just know this, that God's working even when you don't see him working, that he's working even when it seems like your life is void of anything. God is working, and he hears your prayer. Aren't you glad he hears your prayer? We talked about it a few weeks ago, that God hears your prayer, and God is working on your behalf. And I think it shows us something extremely important, because when we don't see God working, we sometimes will... will um, let our limited perspective assume what a limitless God is doing. 
And I would say this, God does some of his greatest work in the midst of disappointing times. Some of the greatest things that God does in our life is in the most disappointing times in our life. I mean, the Bible is replete with examples of that. I love it when, when Moses is before Pharaoh, let my people go, and then they walk out of Egypt with spoil, and, and, and they walk out in mass to go to the promised land. And then they come face to face with the Red Sea. Here they are. There's no way to cross that. They don't, have, they don't have any ability to get across the Red Sea. There's mountains on both sides of them, and, and, and Pharaoh's got his army coming up behind. How disappointing it was for Moses at that moment. I'm just saying that, that the people are saying, we wish we were still back in Egypt. You brought us out here to die. What's wrong? What kind of leader are you? What, what's, what's, the pro, what, what's your problem, Moses? I'm paraphrasing from the original Hebrew when I say that, but what's your problem, dude? What have you done to us? This is our demise, all because of this grand uh, illusionary vision that you had. And then God gives Moses the instruction on how to walk across this sea, this great, huge body of water on dry land. It was a disappointing time for everybody there, and yet God was working in the midst of it because he hears, so don't stop praying. He feels, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept at the, son, at the, at the, the tomb of his friend, the Son of God, wept. Why did he weep? Because he could feel what was going on. He, he understood the heartbreak and heartache, and he still has compassion on people. Are you with me? He feels, he hears, and he knows. He knows what's going on in your life, and he knows what he's going to do in your life and through your life, so you can take some confidence and know that he's got it. Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Aren't you glad for that? That in the process of time, when it looks like nothing's happening, put your faith in him and believe for, for a, a limitless God to blow your limits uh, in this world. In fallen world, God cares deeply about your joy. Now, I'm using the word joy. It's a Christmas word, by the way, right? You'll hear people talk about joy this time of the year. And we've got good reason to be joyful. But joy... And happiness aren't the same things, and I won't dig into it like I could, but, but, but you know that circumstances and situations in life produce happiness. They don't produce joy. Happiness is like here for a moment, it's momentary, and then it's gone. But joy, well, joy is something that will stick with Joy is something the world can't give you. It only comes from God above. There may be substitutes, and there may be some, some fillers that we, I mean, you can get happy going to, you know, I don't know whose concert could you go to. I don't know. I'm afraid to say some names. I used to say Tina Turner, but she's not with us. But you could have went to a Tina Turner concert and be happy and have goosebumps or whatever. You know, I'm not saying go. I'm just saying that you could, and that doesn't mean that's joy. You can even walk out of there talking about it, and then all of a sudden you're going to come face to face with your real problems. You can get on the roller coaster at Kings Island, get on the beast, and it will spin you and turn you and, and, and scare you and all kinds of stuff. And yet when you get off of that exhilarating, thrilling ride, you're going to be back to the same problems you had before you got on there. It didn't change a thing. But joy, I'm talking about God's own joy. It's a difference maker for us. Luke 1.14, the angel says to Zechariah, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. It's like the angel is like saying, okay, point one, in God's plan, you're old, your wife, advanced in years, and she's going to get pregnant. And number two, 
you're going to experience joy and gladness. I love it because joy is coming. I don't know how miserable their life was before this, but joy is coming. John 15, 11, Jesus said, These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Romans 15, 13 Apostle Paul writes and says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. James 1, verses 2 and 3, uh, James writes and says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You could read throughout the Word, and you'll see these affirmations of God desiring for his people to have joy because God cares about two things, and that's his glory and our joy. And these two things are never mutually exclusive. God's glory and our joy go hand in hand. God can be glorified, and we can be filled with joy in the midst of disappointment. And I thought about, and Cassie's with us. Cassie, can you stand, Cassie? I know I didn't have you do it in the first service, but Cassie over here, everybody, just about, some of you may not know, but Michael and Cassie, thank you. Give them a big hand. You, you don't know for sure why you're doing that, some of you, but Michael and Cassie, as part of Elevation Church, they serve in Romania, and she's back for a couple weeks getting some stuff done. But, and they have like 10 kids, six, five, five, five. I don't know if that's prophetic or not, I'm just saying. They got five. They were singing something about wanting more this morning, so, you know. Anyways, I remember when they first came here. I think it's around, it's probably over 10 years ago. And I, I didn't know them when they walked in. I got to meet them. And uh, as I talked to Michael, I could just, and Cassie, could just hear the, the desire in their heart to be in Romania serving the people there. And by the way, you don't just run off to some place. I mean, if you do, you'll come back really quick. You don't run off someplace just on a whim. Like when God calls you, you can't do anything but. And so um, the, the organization at the time they were with um, sent them to Bangladesh instead. And that was a hard season. In fact, when they walked in the door uh, here on that day, they were in a difficult, disappointing season. And they served faithfully like three years in Bangladesh three years in Bangladesh, and, and uh, one of their children were born there. I don't know nothing about birth and babies, but birth and babies didn't sound like a pleasant experience. I'm a man. I'm even going to speak to it. But, but, and then she was in Bangladesh on top of that, which is uh, not like America and the U.S. when it comes to things like that. And so, so just a, a difficult. And then they came back here, and they were here for a few years, and Michael served in one of the high schools here and taught English. And I, I loved, we'd, he'd share stories about his class and the kids loved him. He's a lovable guy. And I remember him saying, you know, I just tell him the standard of my class is if you see me do it, you can do it. And if I don't do it, you can't do it. He said, so if I don't use foul language, you don't use foul language. If I don't pull my cell phone out in class, you don't pull your cell phone out. Just straight and loving. How I many you can be both? And then, uh, and this would, didn't seem like it would have happened without this, but Robert and Nancy had been to something because they are missionaries, and Nancy's here. They're back this morning. Uh, Nancy's up here on the front row, and, uh, and uh, they were in um, Europe and met someone who helped connect Michael and Cassie to an open door in Romania, and they've been there now for how many years? Five years you've been gone? 
wow, and they come home and see us, but, but serving people there and spreading the gospel and caring for people there, and out of the disappointment that you had looked at and said, oh, that's difficult, they still experience joy in the midst of that, and God got them to the thing that he wanted them to do. Because here's the thing, it's important for you to get this, that sometimes we go through a valley season, and we're like, well, when I get out of this, man, I'm going to praise God, and I'm going to, or, you know, or, you know, I'm going to have joy when I get out of this hard thing, this disappointing time. I'm gonna, you know, and we put it off out here somewhere. When, when I just want you to understand this, that in the midst of the valley, before you ever get out of the valley, you can be experiencing joy. Psalm 1611 says, There's present, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there's pleasures forevermore. That in the midst of the hard thing, of the disappointment, of the difficulty, in the midst of the valley, you can experience God's joy because in his presence is fullness of joy. And don't believe the lie that somehow things of God have improved for you to have joy. He'll give you joy right where you're at. You taste of the Lord and see that he is good right now. Don't wait. And in this fallen world, God's plan for your life is better than your plan for your life. I'm just telling you, we get good plans sometimes. Sometimes Some of you are great planners and you plan it all out. And then when it didn't go the way you plan, you're so messed up. Anybody like that? Disappointed and... Just understand this, God's got a better plan, a better design than your design. Verse 14 says, And many, just read to you, many will rejoice at his birth. And the angel's telling telling Zacharias about his future son. He's going to be great before the Lord. And and then he goes on to explain, and I I won't get into the verse, but he just says that he's not going to drink wine or strong drink. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from, from his mother's womb. You don't read about anybody else that has this. I mean, John, their son, this plan of, that God has bigger and greater than, than, than anything seemingly that's happened on the planet up to that point. You've got to understand that there's been uh, the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament, 400 years, and, and some would say it's 400 years of silence, and, and certainly there's not great revelation, right? There's, there's an empty space between the two on purpose. There's not great revelation, and, 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 and there's a prophecy, though, that wraps up the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, in the wrapping up, the Lord says this, that, that he's going to send uh, Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to the children, the hearts of children to their fathers. I think that's powerful. Because when I read in verse 16 and 17 what the angel speaks to Zacharias, it's, 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 um, it's undeniable how important and significant their child's going to be. And he will turn many of the children of Israel, in verse 16, to the Lord their God. Verse 17, and he will also go before him and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In other words, Zechariah, you're going to give, your wife is going to give birth. Now, if it had happened many years ago when you were pr- first prayed that, maybe it wouldn't have been like, but now is the time. Galatians 4 and 4 says that the Son of God right, the, was born in the fullness of time, that there was a specific set time for Jesus to come. And, and Zechariah, you and your wife are, are older now, but I'm going to give you a son that the world hasn't ever seen. 
anything like this. Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus himself said, Truly I say to you, among those born of, of, of uh, women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I, I'm just saying this, that he's a significant player, character, part of the, of the, the birth of Christ. And he's going to come to this couple. And their plan was, well, maybe we'll have, maybe they had it jotted down somewhere, I don't know, on a scroll. We're going to have five children, three boys and two girls. We're going to do the Brady Bunch thing, have three and three. We, we got it all planned out because they had big families back there. Maybe we're going to have ten kids. I don't know what their plan was. Maybe they didn't even have a plan. But they were believing for a child. They were praying. They were hoping for a child. But there wasn't time because God's plan is always better. They may have had five kids and nobody ever heard their names and knew their names today. But the child God was bringing was one that we'd never forget his name, that he would prepare the way before Christ. And I think sometimes in life when it comes to this idea of God's plan being better, we can get caught in the disappointing times and lose sight of what God's doing. There's one of these app things on the TV. I don't know which one it is, but, but at the bottom, if you're watching a show, you can pick scenes and go watch them. You guys, anybody have that on your TV, like somewhere? Where like it's say scene number 12 or scene number 30 or whatever it is. And, you know, you could pick, you could like, you get rid of all the boring parts and just go up to like the, the end and find out what, ha- what, what happens, I guess, if you wanted to. But if you pick any one of those parts on their own, it probably wouldn't make sense and may not even be, like, you know, Home Alone, I don't know if this is a scene or not, but it's a part of the movie, but the Home Alone, you know that part where they got Kevin and the guys that got him, he's come up through the basement in his final plan, and they pinned him up on the door hook, and he's hanging there, and then, you know, was it, what's her names, Herb and Marv, is that them, yeah? And, and they're there, and they're like, ah, you little kid, ah, all that to him. And if that's the scene that you got, he's running from him, he's there, you'd say, well, this is a bad deal, I don't want to watch this movie. I mean, I'm talking about before the, the snow shovel slayer guy hits him in the head. You're like, yeah, never was more happy to see somebody get hit in the head, right, when you get to that far. I, I'm just saying this, that if we only watch that scene, we'd say, this is a horrible movie. I don't watch this, poor little kid. But when you watch it in context and you look over the whole film, Right, this tapestry that's being woven that you look back and you see how these guys are trying to break in and he's home, he's home by himself and he does all these pranks and, and they're stepping on you know, broken ornaments and, and you know, his head's burnt off and you know, all the stuff. You're like, yeah, those guys had that coming to them and they didn't get him. And you're like, yeah, it's just a made-up story anyway. So you know what I'm just saying. You're trying to be like Jesus, but you're like glad those guys got what they had coming to them, right? And so... But if you've just seen the one scene, but when you see it in its entirety, and I would say this, if God could show you your life like that, you may at the time and moment you're in a certain scene in your life say, well, I wish I could just remove that. I wish this wasn't happening. I wish I didn't have that disappointing time. And yet when you stand back and look over the tapestry of your life and you see how God has woven all that together, you stand back and say, God, thank you for the difficult time I went through because I could have never got to chapter 37 and chapter 38 and chapter 40 without the hard times. Because you're growing and you're learning something in those times. And you wouldn't change a thing because his plan is better. How many believe that? Say yes. And lastly this morning, in this fallen world, it's important that you understand God is faithful. God is faithful. It gets pretty great 
in this story, and I won't read it all. You can read it this, this week. In Luke 1.18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. There's a good marriage la- lesson for some of you guys right there. See, he, call, he called himself old, but he was careful the way he explained how his wife was, right? He didn't say, Elizabeth, she's old. She's advanced in years. And then we'll jump down to verse 24, and it says this. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself for five months. I think it's so important to understand that God's faithfulness, that when they were believing and praying, and God answers your prayer different than you might think sometimes or that you would even prefer, and yet it's always right. I think this is the place we land is that we have to have gratefulness in the good times and faithfulness in the bad times. Thank you for listening to the Elevation Indie Podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you're notified as soon as the message becomes available each week. And hey, while you're here, go ahead and share this with somebody that needs to hear the message. Thanks, and see you next week.